Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are in our fourth transmission under the cone of quarantine. So again, we're going to talk about a single poem, and in this case, it's Ted Berrigan's Red Shift. Here we are in our shifting world. Shifty-eyed. The red red shift, right? In, In astrophysics, the red shift is the proof that the universe is expanding. And I am assuming that Ted Berrigan had this in mind. Yeah, I had occasion to listen to some of Ted's readings of Redshift. And it was interesting in his reading at Bard in 82, he gave a a brief introduction, very brief, just touching on the title. And he demurred any deep knowledge regarding the meaning of the term red shift, aside from his understanding that red shift is a light phenomena used to measure the outward force of a nova, of a supernova. And that red shift, I guess, would be connected to the expansion of the universe. And I, I And I think in part, Maybe Berrigan, in that sense of the supernova, was also aware of the experience of our lives as an explosive state and of his own life, you know. He um, died in the mid-1980s. Is that, I don't have his dates in front of me, but. He died on the 4th of July in an ambulance, I believe, or. I don't know if he died at the hospital. He had a sudden attack. I think lately there's... I remember that Ed Sanders attributed his death to a deadly Twinkie. I remember him using that phrase. Was that a joke? That was a joke? Hard to know, you know. I I think most recently I read that it was uh, hepatitis C because I think Ted was a little bit of a heroin user. Maybe he, from a needle, he got hepatitis C. He died young at the age of 48, as I recall, 48. Well, um, this poem was written when he was, what, 43? Well, he, in the poem, he writes, I am 43. Well, that's right, yeah. Oh, I die. I will never die. I will live to be 110. Yeah. Did he, maybe he passed on shortly after this poem was composed or published? I don't know. I thought he died in 19. 19- 83, and I was just, you know, nosing around, seeing if I could uh, get, um, I yeah, it's 1983. Was that so the, the reading from Bard that you listened to was uh, very close to the end of his life. You had mentioned 1982, I think? Yeah. Okay. Plus mm. or minus within a year. Right. Mm. And I saw him read around that time at the uh, uh, St. Mark's Church in the East Village. Right near where he lived. He lived on St. Mark's Place. And Sparrow, you had worked with him in a workshop or two. You Is that how you came to know one another? 
I studied with him uh, twice at uh, City College. I got a master's in okay. creative writing at the real City College, not the grad center. And I took two classes with him two years apart. I guess one in 82, one in 83. So I studied with him about six weeks before he died. I had no idea he was going to die. <laughs> but some of the other people in the class suspected that, you know, he, he missed a few classes. He seemed to be in terrible health. He was overweight, you know. He, I remember, I was just thinking of it today, I remember him saying it was spring, and he said, no, it was a late spring, and he said, I think this spring is never going to come. And uh, and then he died a few months later. But the, he did live to see the spring. <laughs> I really uh, like Ron Paget's book on Ted Berrigan, a memoir of their friendship entitled Ted. And in that, Ron Paget writes about how he distanced himself from Ted Berrigan in Ted's final years. Very painful for Ron Paget, but um, Ted's addictions, primarily to speed and heroin as well, um, became too much because um, Ted continued to ask for money and just oh, show, yeah. show up at his apartment all hours of the night, even though Ron Paget had a small child at the time. It's a, it's a um, heart-wrenching narrative that Ron Paget shares in that work. Yeah, Ted was always hustling money. He was. And he was always angry, he, and he was always angry at people for not lending him more money and having ever, uh, feuds with people because they didn't give him enough money. I, I didn't get the sense that Ted was particularly a heroin addict. I thought, you know, that he probably shot some heroin, but he was principally a speed freak, you know, amphetamines, right? That's my understanding. Famously. Yeah. So this poem, Redshift, um, shall we talk about it? What? Well, I, let me just say that I did look up the official definition of Redshift, you know, Okay. And I think the Encyclopedia Britannica, they give it as a single word. Displacement of the spectrum of an astronomical object toward longer wavelengths. Well, longer wavelengths meaning red wavelengths. It is generally attributed to the Doppler effect, a change in wavelength that results when a given source of waves and an observer are in rapid motion with respect to each other. So, you know, I think the Doppler effect, the most famous example is with a train whistle, where the, somehow the train is in motion and relative to you, and the and you hear, I think, what this undulation, I think, is the Doppler effect, the, is kind of woo, 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 something like that. So it's, it's more, it's not, I mean, I, as I understand it, it's not specifically connected to the uh, expansion of the universe. It has to do with this uh, phenomenon of distortion that happens when uh, light waves are in motion. Well, that takes the wind out of the sails of my reading of the poem. <laughs> well, I shouldn't have told you. Uh, well, no, I think that redshift is used as a measure of the expanding universe. I guess it was Hubble, right, who um, first articulated that idea? Well, uh, look, it, with this poem, I don't know Ted Berrigan's work very well, as I mentioned last podcast. I really like this poem. Oh, thought, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. thought it, it really makes me want to read more Ted Berrigan. It's, it's an exciting poem. There's um, uh, playfulness to it, but there's also this um, heavy quality, mm. this groundedness. Um, 
I love it how he begins at a specific minute. Here I am at 8.08 p.m. And, and then uh, in line with my um, red shift reading, the, the um, life space of the poem continues to um, expand. Uh -huh. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. As all of these memories and sensations and associations are added into the, um, the mm. equation of the poem, it gets larger and larger and larger. But it, it, it begins at a very specific, finite point on the horizon. Yeah, it's interesting as a carryover from our last podcast in which we talked about the nature of time, which is, of course, you know, in the first um, five words, you know, here I am at 8.08 p.m. I thought that you, Sparrow, would have something to say about 8.08. <laughs> I'm just this moment making a note on a piece of paper saying numerology. Yeah, I mean, I think that that 808 is really important and really great. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the poem could not have started at any other time. Yeah. You know, it's a palindromic time. That is, it's the same forwards and backwards. It's got eights and zeros, which are pretty much all you really need in life, the eightfold path and the nothingness in between the two eightfold paths. <laughs> or And then when you put it on its side, it's two infinities. You know, it's it's kind of, uh, and was it really 808? You know, it starts out and you're, you're thinking, this is a fabulous time, 808 p.m. And it's interesting that he puts p.m. in lowercase, you know. He doesn't give that, like, garish capital P, capital M, but the humble little P period, M period. I think that it's, um, you know, you also have eight times eight, which is the number mm. of hexagrams in the I Ching. And I think also it's, of course, a gesture to Frank O'Hara. Yes. You know, and that's a convention, that's a trope of, of O'Hara's of starting a poem with the specific time of the situation temporally and then a magnification of the physical and interpersonal dynamics of a situation so yeah totally and frank o'hara is mentioned in the poem right he's a key, a key figure, figure in the poem a key right. figure the street i'm sorry the streets look for alan frank or me alan is a movie frank disappearing in the air it's heavy with that lightness heavy on me i heave through it them of course yeah, we yeah. don't know that for sure that it's frank o'hara you know, that's that's part of kind of my reading of the poem is the indeterminacy of um, of so much of the poem and also the unreliability of the narrator. Because I want to point that out, you, you know, in the by the fourth word or whatever it is, the fifth word, it's like he says, here I am at 8.08 p.m. And immediately, I don't at least inside of me, something says, is it really 8.08 p.m.? You know, does he just like that number? Is he just playing with our heads? And that's going to continue through the whole poem. Like, we don't know for sure that it's 8.08 p.m. Besides, by the time he writes it, it's probably 8.09 p.m. You know, like, it's it, it, it's <laughs> kind of, you know, it's it brings out this question of, like, how do you know anything for sure? Kind of There's like a red shift that makes all of reality difficult to apprehend, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I think also it's interesting, you know, staying with that first line, uh, you know, 8.08 p.m., indefinable, ample, rhythmic frame, 
Mm. Uh, which I think is also then becomes complementary to the last line, which is the world's furious song flows through my costume. This relation of a frame and a costume and then of the air phenomena, February fierce arabesques on the way to tree and winter landscape. I'm not sure what are arabesques exactly in this, but I associate it with air or I drink some American poison liquid air, which bubbles and smoke Mm. to have character and to lean. And this is what I dig about in part this poem is the use of the enjambment. Then he goes to a new line and puts in in and then slaps down that period. That in is just... Uh, hanging there in space in a in a terrifically dignified, not costume, not frame, just in. They're just there. And it's capitalized. I think that should be pointed out. He capitalizes the first word of every line like a real poet, like Wordsworth, not like a beat Allen Ginsberg poet where everything is lowercase. So he, so that lean in really really hits you because of that capital partly. Although the um the lengthy lines are um, a nod to Ginsburg, I, I gather, right? Who's hmm. mentioned in the poem, right? Um, hey, arabesque Arbor, um, well, means it comes from ballet. It's 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 a it's a posture in which the body is supported on one leg, with the other leg extended horizontally backward. I mean, I associate arabesque with some kind of like. Rococo Baroque uh, decora- decoration. I thought he meant that the wind is kind of flowing in these kind of uh, moving complex patterns. That's how well, I that's read it. Yeah. I would agree with that, but I would say that it's February. So mm. what it is is the air is the breath, is the exhalation, which then he kind of stays with. Again, American poison liquid air. And then also... Mm the putting that color trace into the exhalation, the shape of air in the form of the smoke, you know, smoking a Chesterfield or what Mm -hmm, have you. mm -hmm. Um, That sense of making those arabesques concrete in a verbal dimension as, you know, in a a poetic attitude or attention. Right, because right after he drinks... He loved to drink Pepsi, so I assume the American poison liquid air. I'm translating that in my mind into a Pepsi. For some reason, he preferred Pepsi to uh, Coke. Which bubbles? Which bubbles? It's, it's yes, which bubbles? Yeah. And also, it's poison. Yeah, but right after the Pepsi comes the, uh, this the cigarette and smoke to have character and to lean in. And to lean in. And it's like, this is why I smoke. He's got to explain to us, this is why I smoke, to have character. Kind of uh, more interesting. Well, I mean, a lot of Ted is attitude. Mm. You know, and that's integral to his poetics, which I guess in no small measure comes out of the New England transcendentalists, as we've come to refer to them, and to Thoreau. Uh, And the idea of the principal subject of Ted's poetry being his own dimension, his own frame, and co- uh, uh, his, his own experience. I mean, mm. Fre- uh, Ted never strays too far from 
from Democritus, the idea, you know, all I perceive is my body. I I took notes when I studied with Ted and uh, copious notes. I was constantly writing down everything he said. And then afterwards, after he died, I edited the the notes with uh, two fellow students of mine, Sheila Olson and Jane Bosveld, who were students in Ted's class with me. And then we published them in the World magazine, this magazine called The World, published by the Poetry Project at the St. Mark's Church. And I was reading them today to try to, you know, reading these notes. And one thing he writes, you know, that I wrote down that he said was, how do you deal with an instance of deep feeling, partly by being very alert? And then I think, uh, you know, it sort of summarizes his method and also this poem. Because this poem is, I think, a, a very deeply felt poem that is also extremely alert and full of detail and precision. Maybe this, maybe that's a transcendentalist uh, trait. I don't know. Certainly a trait of Thoreau. That Thoreau, like, understood God by understanding by staring at a woodchuck for three hours. Well, I guess the time in which Berrigan came up. Um, you know, and leaving out of Oklahoma, I guess with Joe Brainerd and Ted Gallup or J- J- Joe Gallup? Dick Gallup? Dick Gallup. Dick Gallup, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were both at Tulsa, and I guess they followed Ron Padgett, is that correct, who was studying at Columbia, something like that. And that was in, you know, like he writes in the poem, 1961. Right, which I think is the year that Bob Dylan uh, gets to New York, too. thinking that as well. It is the year Bob Dylan put his suitcase down in New York. And and Ted was a big Dylan fan. Because I studied with him, as I said, in the 80s, when Dylan was putting out terrible albums. And uh, and Ted was very respectful of, of Dylan's, you know, he said, you have to listen to every Dylan album, something like that. Ha, ha, ha. Now, there's a lot of Frank O'Hara in here, the I do this, I do that, the uh, yes. the, the, the uh, consciousness of time and place, and uh, the opening up of the poem to his friends, you know, naming poetic um, companions, and also uh, pop reference cultures like to California Dreaming. Oh, Cal- yeah. California Dreaming, right, is um, a song by the Mamas and the Papas. No, not him. There's a song, California Dreaming, but no, I won't do that. I am 43. When will I die? I will never die. I will live to 110, and I will never go away, and you will never escape from me. Who am always and only a ghost, despite this frame, spirit who lives only to nag? Well, that sort of passing over the shoulder of O'Hara is, of course, a direct reference to Walt Whitman. Wait, what? Where's the unambiguous reference to Whitman? Oh, uh, I am always and only a ghost, despite this frame. Spirit Ah. lives only to nag, that he continues to live on Ah. through his poetry. You Ah. know, uh, you know. Look not for me, you know, in this book. Look for me in the, the mud that, you know, you collect on the bottom of your shoe. Under your boot soles. Under your yeah. boot soles. In the, the final section of Song of Myself. Yeah. Right. Hmm. And there's that whole sense with Berrigan and within his poetics of the 
complete and utter displacement of himself into his work, into his poems, into his poetry, into his books, into the degree to which he fused the neural and emotional and intellectual and physical networks of his life to writing poetry, to the practice mm-hmm. of poetry, that it was a continuous 24-7 dedication, which I think, Sparrow, as Ted's student, you in no small measure learned or picked up or practice. Is that part of the reason that he makes this joke about California dreaming, that he's not going to um, waste time fantasizing about the sunny weather in California, that he's dedicated to the life space he's, 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 he's in, as hard as it is in some ways, as a writer in New York City, that he's, 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 he's putting the kibosh on this um, dream of some other life in some other more auspicious place. Makes huh? sense to me. I he yeah. spent some time in Bolinas. He did. Um, oh, that's Ted right. did. Yeah, but yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, California dreaming. I walked walked into a church. I passed, I passed along, along, the, along the way, and I got down on my knees <laughs> and I began to pray. So that sense of the church, you know, certainly for Berrigan. <laughs> is in his frame and in the costume and is and in his uh, and in his air and his spirit. I mean, California Dreaming is a is a very uh, kind of tragic and hopeless existential despair song. You know, the oh, preacher yeah. loves the cold. He knows what I'm going to say. Something like that. You know, it's like it's a kind of about being lost and hopeless. So, you know, I think that. I mean, I, the way I see Ted's mind is that there's like seven different interpretations of anything that are kind of all equally valid. For example, I was going to say this red shift could mean uh, I'm a communist. I'm, I've shifted to being a red. You know, it could mean I'm wearing a red dress. A shift can be a dress, you know. And, and when he says California Dreaming's not for me, it could mean like, no, I'm not going to give up on things. I'm not full of existential despair, you know. Uh, and it also could mean your reading of it. I'm not a dreamer in California, you know. I'm a cynic in New York. Right. It could mean lots of things. I think it's a lot of it is the sounds of the words, the way the words work themselves. I think the meaning kind of comes out of the sounds in a way. Yeah, out of the yeah. sounds. I mean, out of the sounds, out of the I would posit waves. It's not exactly, I mean, <laughs> do we mean sounds? We mean kind of a gate, like G-A-I-T. There's mm. a sense of striving. There's an attitude. There's a falling forward and a confidence, I feel, you know. And the meaning comes through, but the meaning is that mode of conveyance. It is a certain degree of dare I say, kind of an American bluffness. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about this just before our podcast. I was thinking about this poem, like, what does the poem mean? I thought I, 
I'll go outside for inspiration. And it's been raining for days. And the Esopus Creek, which is like 100 feet from my house, is surging. It's brown and surging, like it, like out of bounds, rushing into the sea. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, that is kind of like Ted's poem. It kind of surges, kind of his poetry it just moves. You can't stop it. He can't stop it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Just as time can't be stopped, right, in the poem. Mm, that conveys a propulsive experience of, of time. Right. And there's a nostalgia that's present. Um, yeah. You know, I would pause it beautifully. But that nostalgia is not one of mourning per se it's a nostalgia that is taken along in the wave and just helps it to rise a little higher mm. like it's propulsive the um the use of the nostalgia is as an energetic field that carries more weight forward Oh, I really like that, as opposed to nostalgia that leaves one stuck. Yeah. Or, more or nostalgia characterized by California dreaming, huh. perhaps. That's interesting. You know what line I like the most? Well, it's not an entire line. It's um, a phrase within a line. But it really struck me because I thought, oh, my goodness, can't I identify with this? Who would have thought that I'd be here? It's about a third into the poem, and I just thought as a phrase, it expressed um, that mm -hmm. experience of just surprise that you know that, that we ex many of us, all, maybe everyone, experiences at any given moment. Like, wow, how did I get here? Uh, <laughs> as as a member of the species, as a member of this century, the member of this millennium, as uh, mm -hmm. this specific frame, this specific body. You know, how did it all happen? And I, I just. I, I love that phrase. And also, we have to yeah. discuss the fact that, you know, these are one of our quarantine podcasts. And this is the thought everyone has about this experience right now. Like, uh, what is it? Who would have thought that I'd be here? Who would have thought that I'd be in my study, staring at a computer, talking to two people as little... Uh, images on my uh, screen in front of me and that in fact this would be my entire social life <laughs> no it's fascinating i think also that phrase has a particular force as it's juxtaposed with berrigan's very frank articulation of openness mm. um you know nothing wrapped up nothing buried everything Love, children, hundreds of them. Great, great phrase. Hundreds yeah. of them. Money, marriage, ethics, a politics of grace. So that that sense of that he's not like Whitman, that there's no blinds. Everything is open. A mm. pure, permeable, poetic field in which anything can happen and does mm. like as we say the walls of an irish 
pub. You know, you can put anything on the walls of an Irish pub and it will seem to fit, huh. if that Seems makes true. sense. Yeah, I was going to say something about Ted's Irishness. I think he felt very strongly about being Irish. And he thought that the Jews and the Irish were very similar. I remember that vividly, him saying that. A lot of his uh, acolytes, a lot of his followers, a lot of those hundreds of children that he's referring to, it seems to me, and I think that's what he means by it, uh, were Jewish. And the, that kind of, there's something about that nostalgia that we were talking about before that strikes me as very Irish. It's like a certain kind of sad, melancholy happiness, sort of. That's like, you look back at the past, that was me, I was a little boy then, you know, in knickers. It, and uh, how does he say it so beautifully? Not that practically a boy, serious in corduroy car coat, eyes penetrating the winter twilight at Sixth and Bowery in 1961. He's writing about himself almost as if he's his own son, you know? And you can almost hear it in a brogue not that uh, practically a boy, serious in cord or a car coat. <laughs> I love the word car coat. I know. I know. I that phrase that's like the, that's straight out of the Hardy Boys. <laughs> I yeah, that's it, right. It reminded me of Ginsburg. It reminded me of lines from Hal. I think uh -huh. the term is parataxis, where you... Um, you know, combine two words that don't quite go together, but they work beautifully in the poem. Mm. Like car code. I just thought it was a. I just I feel that Allen Ginsberg, in addition to Frank O'Hara, is present. Huh. In the, that huh. was just a moment where I thought so. Well, I think Ted considered himself a late beat, yes. more than sort of uh, as you know a second generation New York school. He really considered himself a late beat and felt that the beats had picked up. Uh, more than any other movement in blah, 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 you know, in American <laughs> literature, this sense of the self as being an infinite, a subject of infinite mm. study, well, you know, the infinitude of the thinking man, Emerson's uh, principal huh. stance, you know, or attitude. It's funny, but, yeah, you see, you see Ted as a, as an um, as a transcendentalist, and I kind of see him mostly as kind of a working class guy. Maybe because I sort of knew him. I mean, I didn't really know him. I studied with him. But um, you know, to me, there's a lot of like a lot of working class uh, style directness in the way he talks and in his poetry. You know, I think there may be both there. The 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 New England transcendentalism. And the kind of, you know, working class, almost squalor. There's something almost squalid about the poem. And kind of savage. Yeah. I, I sort of Tough. see Ted Berrigan as, yeah. What is the, uh, uh, from, I guess, the sonnets, masculine, feminine, tough. Yeah, no, yeah, what is it? No. <laughs> something it's like a right. marvelous feminine and tough, something like that. It's not masculine, feminine, and tough. I think it's marvelous, feminine, and tough. The Beats had this kind of pseudo-working-class uh, feel to them. And Kerouac really was a working-class guy. He has this great short story, early short story called How I Became a Socialist. He wrote it when he was something like 18. There's a book called something like Notes from an Underwood 
typewriter that I read for some reason. And in it, he describes working for, I don't know, a month or two in a cookie factory in, the, in Lowell, Massachusetts. And That's just like the kind of whatever agony of working in a cookie factory, he describes with incredible vividness. And it's funny because it's called How I Became a Socialist. And, and in fact, Kerouac eventually became a right-wing, you know, fanatic who hated uh, hippies and voted, I believe, twice for Richard Nixon. And Ted Berrigan met um, Jack Kerouac. He loved Kerouac's writing. Was Kerouac in Lowell at that point, or was he um, in St. Petersburg, Florida, where he ended up dying? I don't know. Probably in Lowell. between, probably. It's probably in, uh, in Long Island, where he lived for a while. I'm wondering what you think about moving from Allen Ginsberg to the other father of the poem, Frank O'Hara. Is there um, a life history of Frank O'Hara in miniature here? Um, let me just read from the huh. toward the beginning. The streets look for Alan, Frank, or me. Alan is a movie. Frank disappearing in the air. Frank O'Hara died um, in 1966. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, was it on Fire Island, I believe? He was Definitely. run over. He was hit by a car on Fire Island. Like a but he died in the hospital afterwards, I think, in of New York City in Manhattan. Of a ruptured liver from, of internal bleeding from the impact. Yeah. But, but Frank, it took him like a day to die. Yeah, that's right. Frank disappearing in the air. It's heavy with that lightness, heavy on me. I heave through it then as the... Calvados is being sipped on Long Island now. That's where um, O'Hara died 20 years almost ago. And the man smoking is looking at the smiling, attentive woman and telling, is the 20 years almost ago possibly a reference to Frank O'Hara's death? Huh. So it'd be what? 63 that he's reflecting back on, 63. You know, it's mutable uh, and maybe he went out to Long Island, we don't, it's hard to say, I'm not sure. The yeah. Calvados, this is a kind of apple brandy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's not something that one typically associates with Berrigan. Or with uh, Frank. Yeah. Maybe more Frank O'Hara than, than Ted. Well, who knows? Well, I, I, just, I just, he becomes aware of his own death, or when will I die, at the age of 43. O'Hara died at the age of 40. There's this reference to 20 years ago. I just just occurred to me that O'Hara's um, tragic passing may haunt the poem. Maybe yeah, it's a good that's a good point. And Ted was, you know, we haven't exactly explicitly said this. Maybe assuming that everybody that listens to this knows this, but Ted was kind of like sort of the disciple of Frank O'Hara. You know, the most kind of obsessive disciple. I mean, that's what my daughter told me from reading that Frank O'Hara uh, biography. Yeah, I think he used to follow him around and uh, definitely prescribe to your school, Sparrow, of if you want to climb the ladder of fame, <clears throat> its rungs are made of praising other people who are famous. <laughs> and they give you a hand up. I believe you, you said as much. I said that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, something along those lines. It's interesting. I'm like the podcast historian. <laughs> Tony Toll mentioned to me that um, Tony Toll, the New York City poet, 
um, who knows Sparrow, and also Sam. Sam published the book that um, I wrote uh, in part on Tony Toll. But Tony Toll said that after Frank O'Hara died, he felt as if he hmm. was in competition with Ted Berrigan huh. over who was the heir apparent. Oh, I see. Of the O'Hara aesthetic. Hmm. The O'Hara hmm. poetics, if you will. What? But that's neither here nor there. I mean, my my daughter told me this anecdote that I guess, is that guy Brad Gooch? Is that the name of the guy that wrote the Frank O'Hara yes, biography? The city poet. Yeah. So there's an anecdote in there. There's a party at Frank's, Frank O'Hara's house. All his disciples are there and they're all laughing, talking, drinking, having a great, being witty, having a great time. And Ted is quietly in a corner looking through files of Frank's poems, just like imbibing, you know, everything he can find written by Frank. And I think, that, I don't know, that sort of sticks in my mind as like the image. And then my daughter pointed out to me, I kind of had the relationship to Ted that Ted had to Frank. You know, like Frank O'Hara and Ted were not, I think we're not personally that close. But I don't know that Frank loved Ted Berrigan particularly. But, uh, but Ted was obsessed with figuring out Frank and I was obsessed with figuring out Ted. And Ted seemed to more or less despise me, as far as I could tell. <laughs> I, that was the sense I got. Like, I would I would constantly raising my hand to ask questions, and he was really sick of it. And one time I was raising my hand for, like, five minutes. He wouldn't call on me. And finally, he turned to me and he said, do you have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> it was kind of funny, you know. But cruel, you know. And I just got the feeling... He didn't much like me. You know, I was not the kind of person he liked. I never took any drugs. I was lived in Washington Heights. I was kind of, I was very, by his standards, like very religious and just sort of a square kind of, <laughs> like a like a Boy Scout kind of. What do you think that um, in this poem or in across his corpus in general, what do you think Ted Berrigan does that um, Frank O'Hara couldn't do? I mean, I see this poem as very different than Frank. I mean, I don't... First of all, Frank O'Hara, in my mind, is incredibly erudite. He's like one of the most learned people who ever uh, wrote a poem. Like, uh, I was complaining, I think maybe in the last podcast, that like, when we were discussing that John Ashbery poem, I was talking about how stupid the ideas of great poets are. I was talking about Ode, Ode on a Grecian Urn, Ode to a Grecian Urn. And I, w I was going to say that about that uh, Ashbery poem, that it was really full of pretty obvious, dumb ideas, I thought. Whereas Frank O'Hara was just really a brilliant guy and incredibly sophisticated and learned, though basically also from a working class Irish uh, background. But so his, you know, just the mental activity in his poems, the awareness of, uh, you know, Brahms and of uh, every John Ford movie. You know, it's just really vast. And, and Ted is not erudite. He's not, a, he's not a scholarly, encyclopedic guy. But Ted is a real poet. And Frank O'Hara is kind of just purely from a, to my mind, purely from a, what's the word, melodic uh, standpoint, is kind of a bad poet. He doesn't have a good sounds to his poetry. He doesn't know how to make the music 
of poetry, whereas Ted is a real, Ted's like Yeats. He has that gift, the poetic gift, the gift of making sound beautiful. Yeah, I think it's difficult to make super duper broad statements <laughs> regarding, you know, transposing a body of work to an individual and then saying, uh, making broad statements that apply to all their work because I, I'm not sure you can say that about peak moments of Frank O'Hara's work, mm. peak moments of Ted Bergen's work, of which Redshift is definitely, you know, one of them without doubt. There's a lot of Ted Berrigan in this and I'm holding up for, you know, listeners at home, his the collected poems of Ted Berrigan published by the University of California in 07. And there's a lot of very slight, very incidental, mm-hmm. very kind of shavings, unformed, you know, more like the debris, more like a debris field than necessarily something that's being put together in this kind of sonic a symmetry, symmetry, higher level connectedness, you know, like compositionally, song-wise, beautiful poems. Yeah, definitely, man. And that's part of what's great about Berrigan, is that he was able to see these sort of splinters and say, hey, this is part of my path, you know, this is part Mm. of my movement through life. And that you yourself, Sparrow, as somebody given to an aphoristic poetics, short, you know, one line, two line, you know, doing like little operations, should be able to dig and say, hey, that's part of what it is. Some arisings are elbowy and awkward and and clunky and won't fly ever, you know, Hmm. and that's fine. Well, I mean, what I want to say is, you know, we're starting off uh, Andrew with the most, you know, formally poetic Ted Berrigan poem. You know, this is his most, it's a tour de force poem. It's a poem that's the most similar to like so-called real poetry. And uh, it's not characteristic of his writing. But I agree with Sam. I agree what you're saying that, yes, I think a lot of his poetry doesn't go anywhere, but I think it's always metrically beautiful. I still hold to that, you know, just from a sound point of view, from the point of view of how something sounds, which I think is what Ted was thinking about. You know, it's always elegant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would also circle back on your positing that Ted, I think Ted was deeply well-read and informed and touched through in an unprejudiced way many poetics and many poets and was was really like a um, magpie you know would collect anything the um, my favorite quote and maybe only quote that I have of Wendell Holmes of Oliver Oliver Wendell Oliver Holmes. Wendell Holmes yeah <laughs> is that he said that that culture is the sum of everything learned forgotten so that the cultural field is that which is around you and makes up this parabola of material that is there and that one's poetry arises beyond that 
um, but is nevertheless informed by it in subtle ways, as is manifest in Red Shift. And then I would say that Frank O'Hara, sometimes he, like in his essay, uh, The Poetics of Personism, as you may recall, that, you know, that he produced for the Donald An and uh, Allen anthology, you know, sometimes he needed to sort of preen a little bit and show off. <laughs> I would say that about Frank O'Hara. He sometimes, you know, wanted to wear his epaulets and sort of show that he had the edge. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and I think also the, the kind of, to continue answering your question, Andrew, I think the kind of introspection and looking back on the past that's in this poem that we've discussed a little bit um, is not much like Frank. I think Frank, Frank O'Hara kind of stayed in the present and kind of moved into the future. Like he wasn't sort of ruminative exactly in the way that, that Ted is. Yeah, I know. I was once trying to explain a difference, the difference, quote unquote, between James Schuyler and Frank O'Hara in a class. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. organically, I said something that's deeply full of reductionism, but I thought it was interesting. I said, with O'Hara, you encounter the self in the world. Uh -huh. With James Schuyler, you encounter the world in the self. Well, that's nice. Sounds very like literal. That. There was a simplicity and elegance to it, but I, I like that. You know, it was one of the few things that I said extemporaneously that I thought, oh, I need to write that down. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's really great. The one thing I would say is that I think that possibly at this moment, to underscore a point that I have, I think maybe we should consider doing a baffling combustions first, which is I'd like to play Ted reading Red Shift. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. You listen to this, and you actually hear what I feel is the signal difference between O'Hara and Berrigan, which has to do with emotional nerve or has to do with emotion, which if right. you listen to his reading, Ted inhabits in his reading in his delivery, he lets you into the garden. He lets you into a sanctuary. He lets you into his act in a way that is profound, I find. He really um, is like a priest a little bit, like an Irish priest, <laughs> or like, you know, an Irish father. And he shows you this quality of vulnerability that I think is Frank could never have pulled off quite, yeah. Ted was a very soulful and kind of emotionally deep guy, but it's hard to know what Frank O'Hara was like since he died so long ago. And in his poems, he seems kind of glib. But I must say, I will say this, that, you know, my daughter became a devotee, I would call it, of Frank O'Hara. So there was a point where she took me and my wife to the cemetery in Springs, uh, you know, in Long Island, uh, outside of East Hampton, where um, where Frank O'Hara is buried in a kind of tiny little plot. Jackson Pollock's got this boulder, and next to him is Lee Krasner, who's got a, like a little rock, and uh, and then nearby is Frank O'Hara, who must have died broke. He's like a tiny little, the smallest plot you can have in the Spring Cemetery, and the energy coming out of Frank O'Hara's grave 
pure, uh, like a Sufi saint. My friend uh, Marcus traveled around India and he went to all these graves of Sufi saints. He said they're like incredible. You're enlightened just standing there. And this was like that. It was like radiating this powerfully spiritual energy. And that really changed how I thought about uh, Frank O'Hara. You know, Frank O'Hara was so evolved that he never had to talk about being evolved. He never had to talk about God or love. He just talked about the kind of the bullshit in his head. And wait, and if if you were ready for it, you could feel the energy through that. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so should we try this grave? Should we try opening this grave of sound? Yeah. So this was... Uh, college from 1982? Yeah, I found a couple readings. There was one at Bard, but it was cut off. And the uh-huh. sound quality was actually better in that, but it was cut off at the end. Uh-huh. This is from his reading at Naropa. Uh, similarly, in 1982, it was collected actually by Peter Gizzi in this anthology of poetry sound recordings called Exact Change. Oh, yeah. I which I that. think was underwritten by Sonic Youth. Oh. Am I right? I don't know. Sounds yeah. perfectly logical. So, okay, so let's try this. This is Red Shift by Ted Berrigan. Red Shift. Here I am at 8.08 p.m. Indefinable, ample, rhythmic frame. The air is biting February fierce arabesques on the way to tree in winter streetscape. I drink some American poison liquid air which bubbles and smoke to have character and to wean in. The streets look for Alan, Frank, or me. Alan is a movie, Frank disappearing in the air. It's heavy with that lightness, heavy on me. I heave through it, them, as the Calvados is being sipped on Long Island now, 20 years almost ago. And the man smoking is looking at the smilingly attentive woman and telling, who would have thought that I'd be here? Nothing wrapped up, nothing buried, everything, love, children, hundreds of them, money, marriage, ethics, a politics of grace, up in the air, swirling, burning even, or still, now more than ever before. Not that practically a boy, serious in corduroy car coat, eyes <laughs> penetrating the winter twilight at 6th and Bowery in 1961. Not that pretty girl, 19, who was going to have to go, careening into middle age, so to burn, and to burn more fiercely than even she could imagine, so to go. Not that painter, who from very first meeting, I would never and never will leave alone until we both vanish into the thin air we signed up for and so demanded to breathe, and who will never leave me, not for sex, nor politics, nor even for stupid permanent estrangement, which is only our human lot and means nothing. No, not him. There's a song, California Dreaming, but no, I won't do that. I am 43. When will I die? I will never die. I will live to be 110 
and I will never go away, and you will never escape from me, who am always and only a ghost, despite this frame, a spirit who lives only to nag. I am only <laughs> pronouns, and I am all of them, and I didn't ask for this, you did. I came into your life to change it, and it did so, and now nothing will ever change that, and that's that. Alone and crowded, unhappy fate, nevertheless, I slip softly into the air. The world's furious song flows through my costume. Wow, that's what, what a wonderful treat. It's, I, I, I heard the, the Midwestern accent. Um, hmm. And I also picked up on the anger in the poem. Yeah. And that's Good not point. something I was cognizant of as I read it on my own. I felt the nostalgia. I felt some joy. I felt the lugubrious heaviness of impending death, mortality, finitude. But the anger really came through that recitation. Yeah. I think maybe that's partly what I mean about his working class character. You know, just like nobody's going to push me around. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. That scrappiness, right? That working class scrap. Yeah, survivor. But I think it also points toward the somewhat secret aspect of the elegiac stance, which is one of protest. Mm. You know, and there's an, an edge and an anger, you know, to be given so much, to be given life. With the ticket at some point inscribed with the termination date. I think it's so funny how he says, I will never die. I will live to be 110, which is like, that's when you die. <laughs> that's like, he gives yeah. the year he's going to die and while he's saying, I'll never die. You know, there's all sorts of like little subtle jokes like that in it as I hear it. Yeah, I mean, and, and we haven't touched on a few of his more intriguing and at the same time baffling dare i say <laughs> phrases like i'm only pronouns yes i am all of them and i am all of them like i am only pronouns and i am all of them is a terrific again echo of a total openness uh -huh. you know, of being behind and before and all around the arrangement the syntax but also then followed with this phrase, I didn't ask for this, you did. Now, I'll note that in the typography uh, or this layout of this poem in this book, as it happens, the you is capitalized. Going yeah. back to, you know, that initial caps thing. Now, that you in the in the in would not be capitalized. Sparrow, in your version, is it capitalized? Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Andrew? Yep, same thing. Uh, my version is, I think, from the uh, upen.edu website. Huh. Dig it. So that's like super duper interesting that that U would be capitalized. And it'd be interesting to do some forensics on the poem and, and you know, insisted on its capitalization. But this thing of I didn't ask for this, you did has certain echoes with Jack Spicer, with his, hmm. you know, with his dying words. What does that mean? I didn't ask for this. You did. It sounds like a divorce, how people talk about divorce. <laughs> That's interesting. That's the language game that I'm getting. I came into your life to change it. <laughs> and it did. Yeah. 
so and now nothing will ever change that and that's that it it sounded like a domestic argument or you know some um a couple that split up and that's well, I, mean, I didn't hear I, that at all yeah, no, I, I, I think that that you, though, is also following directly on I am only pronouns and I but I and I am all of them. The you is a, is one of the pronouns. So the sense of also the self as being a divided house as being a divided structure. I guess um, I'm looking at Abe Lincoln. <laughs> I'm looking <laughs> on behind you, Andrew. So it's a divorce with the self through different pronouns, or there's this dialectic mm -hmm. tension internally that this is, that's what you're saying, right? I, I don't know what I'm saying. I, I love came you. into your life to change it. Who am I? Who are you? I <laughs> did so. And now nothing will ever change that. And that's that. It's baffling. <laughs> I don't know, to me, I mean, I remember that Ted was always saying this. He, he'd always say, remember, I is a letter of the alphabet. And I think his point was, seemed pretty clear that his point was that when you say I in a poem, you don't, you don't mean you, the person that's writing the poem. You're talking about I, this kind of I that can't be really defined. In a sense, like... When somebody writes in a poem, I went to Florida, they're kind of saying the letter I went to Florida. And I think to me, this whole poem is kind of a, a sort of a contemplation of, of identity. Like he begins, here I am at 8.08 p.m., indefinable, ample, rhythmic frame. Like, what the hell is that? <laughs> that doesn't sound like a person. That just sounds like some kind of entity that's not even you know, more like a concept. So but that is a terrific definition of the nature of the ego, perhaps mm -hmm. indefinable, ample, rhythmic frame, you know, and what you choose to put in that frame is up to you. Right. A frame. You like I didn't think it. of that. A frame like a, like a painting is a, as a frame. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I think that his use here is like the frame, the muscular, skeletal frame mm -hmm. but i think it just as aptly is a is a picture frame and also he's framing the poem you know the way one speaks of like a framing device in a novel where the person comes in and you know there's somebody talking i'm i'm reading the last tycoon by um f scott fitzgerald oh, I and read that. Yeah. yeah and this woman is narrating supposedly narrating the book and it's almost like she's framing the book. She starts telling you about some plane ride she took. And then it turns out the book, that's just the frame. That's not really what the book is about. Right, so right, that, right. Like Heart of Darkness has oh. a framing tale. Willa Cather's My Antonia has a framing tale. I mean, it's a mm. great form because it allows and, you that perspective. And, and Ted is sort of framing the poem in the first line like with this completely non-existent or somewhat unfixable, indefinable, is that the word he uses? Yeah, uh, person. I mean, to me, it seems very clear when he says, I didn't ask for this, you did, that he's saying, look, you, the reader, you wanted this poem, so I wrote it for you. And I also, because as Sam, I thought was implying, 
you, when it's capitalized, pretty much always refers to God. So I think Ted is saying on some level, um, look, God, you wanted me to come into existence, so I did. I mean, I think it has a couple of, I think those are two interpretations of it anyway. I like that a lot. That makes a lot of sense. And also, you know, then right after that, he says, I came into your life to change it. And it did so, which is a funny locution. It did so. Not it Again, did. Again, a pronoun. It, so. it is a pronoun. Yeah, good it, point. Yeah. These are all the pronouns. And, you know, when I read this, I think of myself. You know, he came into my life to change it, and it did so. <laughs> yeah, by one remove, as we've discussed, it, uh, Ted changed my life. And there's some uh, kind of shamanic... Um, kind of statement here like i'm a poet i'm here to change the world i can i can materialize gold i'm an alchemist i uh i'm not bound by the laws of uh, physics mm-hmm. i can do anything superhuman yeah that i'm christ yeah i didn't think of that but yes sam did yeah you, did you did you meet ted berrigan ever no i never met ted not in this world no in dreams you could meet him Oh, yeah. And um, the line to me, because we're theoretically discussing the quarantine, this line where he says, nor even for stupid permanent estrangement, which is only our human lot and means nothing. Stupid permanent estrangement is a pretty good um, uh, definition of what we're all going through right now. We're all kind of, you know, it feels stupid and permanent that we are all estranged from none nobody can ever meet another person we can't have lunch together ever again because we're living in this new quarantine which is our human lot and means nothing (laughs) well there also there is something at the back of that phrase for me which is the story or the recollection that Lewis Warsh has Hmm. that he and Bernadette were in part fingered by Alice Notley as having killed Ted Berrigan. Oh. Yeah. And I, (laughs) and Lewis mentioned it and we corresponded some, you know, with email and then uh, Lewis sent me this terrific, memoir of his relationship with Ted, in Mm. which this isn't mentioned, um, but nevertheless sort of contextualizes kind of the interesting dynamics of the Lower East Side and of Ted, you know, as sort of a spider in the center of a web. But Mm. Lewis has not divulged that information yet. We're slated to, uh, me and uh, Michael Ruby are slated to meet him for coffee and drinks and uh, get to the bottom of this. So what does that mean, that they killed Ted? What do you mean? They They gave him drugs that killed him? Somehow the psycho-emotional field had been torn between them due to certain events. There was some deal about money and publishing and something or other Hmm. that... The configuration of that was such that it replicated a kind of psychic dagger that killed Ted. 
Uh-huh. I'm, I'm kind of um, riffing, but uh, something like that. I don't know. We have to um, have mm. to find out. Mm. Well, Ted was always fighting with people, and I kind of remember him having a feud with Bernadette. And Lewis, I guess, published the sonnets, right? United Artists is his press, or he's one of the people behind it. Did you know uh, Grove Press published, republished the sonnets that I guess was originally published by United Artists, maybe. maybe. I'm not sure. So maybe they were fighting over money from the sonnets. It was something else. Something else. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think about Ted is that he died in 83, and, you know, he was still, like, sort of hustling. You know, I mean, he would... The reason I met him is he would sometimes teach classes. That guy, what was his name? Joel Oppenheimer was dying of cancer. He was a professor or a teacher at City College, and so he couldn't teach the class. So that's why Ted was his substitute. That's why I studied with Ted. So Ted would pick up these jobs, and he, you know, teaching a little bit. He'd find a letter from Allen Ginsberg. He'd sell it to some guy that collected rare letters. He'd get $50 for that. He'd pay back $20 to somebody he borrowed money from last week. He'd buy some speed. He'd buy some spaghetti. He'd make a dinner, invite people over for dinner. He'd borrow more money from him. You know, he sort of continued this kind of, he was like a sort of con artist. And uh, so he, but like 83 was about the last year you could do that and get by in the East Village. Things were starting to change even then. Uh-huh. And so he got out just in time before, you know, you had to get a real job. Or a lot of people I knew ended up working for the Board of Ed, you know, being teachers, which you can't imagine Ted doing. As you mentioned at the onset that you saw aspects of this poem as a con. I said that? Yeah. Really? Huh. It's an interesting mode of analysis of any poetry, the field of confidence that (laughs) one is manipulating, you know, that uh, you want to convince somebody that you've identified as a mark to want to give you that which they have of their own volition. Mm. So that would also be another way of interpreting, I didn't. I didn't ask for this, you did. And Hmm. particularly if you is God. What, that he's conning God? Yeah, that that God is a sort of a big confidence game. See, I see... Which it is. Well, I I think you're not wrong or right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) But (laughs) I get the... You know know how I interpret the con in this poem? Is I... I think in some ways he's conning the reader. And this came together for me after I listened to the recording that Sam ah, played. Nice. I think he's conning the reader in some ways by um, assuming the poetic identity of Frank O'Hara, maybe Allen Ginsberg to a degree, in almost a der- derivative manner. And then at that moment of anger, something deeper, more genuine comes through, huh. at least to my ear. Like that's the. Um, I'm having a hard time finding the language. So textually, where do you locate what you call the moment of anger? The moment of anger um, would, for me, would be, um, it begins here. Not that painter who, from the very first meeting, I would never and never 
we'll leave alone until we both vanish into the thin air we signed up for and so demand to breathe and who will never leave me, not for sex, nor politics, nor even for stupid permanent estrangement. Yet in that nexus of lines, something shifts on the emotional. Huh. And the huh. language that emerges feels, I don't know if authentic is the right word, but I feel like I'm um, penetrating through the earth and I've gotten to some level of the core that's um, foundational. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Where the, the first um, two thirds of the poem just feel a little bit more tame. I, I, I see the, or feel, detect these nods to the great masters who have influenced him. Hmm. And then the red shift for me is the shift in, into red, the shift into anger. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. The shift into a passion where, where the um, encasement of someone else's voice falls away completely. Hmm. Hmm. That's a that's super super duper interesting um, to identify within the poem a red shift, a moment of shift. I mean, for me, I agree. I you know the use of the word will hmm. is signatory of something happening. Will is a state of futurity, is the state hmm. of hmm. what is to come, and so you have in that and never and and never will leave alone you know and then you have a whole series of but no i won't do that i am 43 period and then when will i die i will never die i i will live to be 110 i will i will never go away you will never escape from me that sense of the of the and so I don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily identify it as anger so much, except maybe in a Buddhist sense of, of an, but an emotional, a willing of the future, a kind of a, an insistence. I like that. Yeah, I like that, an, an insistence. But it is, um, you're right, it's geared to, toward futurity. And you think of Ted you know, typically, stereotypically as a guy always writing about the present moment. And in fact, that's what we started out talking about, how he's very much starting in this one particular moment. So for him to launch into the future, it's a it's a real break. It's a change. It takes a whole different kind of mind to write about the future. I love it. I love the, right. I love the final line, the world's furious song flows through my costume. And mm-hmm. I furious song as t- I think it's a description of time oh really of the irreversibility of time time's arrow the world's furious song flows through my mm. huh and that kind of fits your reading of the poem as being kind of elegiac and yeah about death in a way and I think that's mm. definitely there there's so much happening in this poem it's really um, quite remarkable yeah, yeah the use of that adjective furious is also think fury is associated with the state of anger so you know that also would underline underscore your sense of this um the red and the shift being one of uh, being pissed off i really heard it you know sparrow you mentioned the irish father the irish dad right voices oh oh yeah like a fatherly sensation or something yeah in 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 the the, uh, lines that sam was just reading i hear an irish priest someone in the uh 
which lines were those? Just, mm-hmm. I will live, you will not, you know, um, there's just oh, something see, yeah. morally instructive about it. Like anyway, that, that sermon in uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Hey, good memory, good association, a beautiful intertextual moment. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, also, yeah, I mean, that I'm... insistence is also, we understand, an impossibility is a rational impossibility, but is a magical inevitability. That sense, I will never die. Well, Ted, you're going to die within a year or so, and I will live to be 110. No, dude, you know, you're you're really pretty sick right now. You don't have much time left. And 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 then, you know, you will go away and you will. We do. See, I really don't feel that we do escape from him. I really do feel that the poetic continuum is is real. And that the rest of these other things are just slides or mirror phenomena or facets that reflect that which is eternal, that which is continuous, that which does live past us furiously and flowing, which is the poetic continuum, you know, and everything else is sort of incidental, which Ted is is, um, transforming himself into and that was Mm. his mission and when somebody writes a poem they're they're writing as the poet they're not writing as their personal self and that poet that writes will never die that's a different like shakespeare will never die even if his poetry is forgotten or his plays are forgotten in 300 years some part of him will never die because he's writing from that I guess I'm kind of saying the same thing that Sam is saying. You know, he's he's writing from eternity to eternity. <laughs> I mean, I'm seeing all this anger in it suddenly now that that's our new theme. You know, the second line, the air is biting February. Yeah. Fierce arabesques. Careening into middle age and then burn to burn more fiercely. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting analysis that uh, Andrew is making, or rather an interesting response to hear the anger in his reading, which I heard more as just kind of righteous defiance, but, and just fabulous uh, sense of music and rhythm. But you're right, I I think you're right. It suddenly feels right that there's also anger in it. And that maybe that's why it's a great poem. It's part of why it's a great poem. Well, you know, when I was taking Jory Graham's workshop, when I was a student at Harvard Divinity School, she once said in class, and like you writing everything um, that uh, Ted Berrigan said down, I would write things that Jory Graham said uh, into my notebook. I thought she was a very bright teacher. And she said that anger, from her perspective, was one of the hardest emotions to capture in English language poetry. I don't know if that's just something someone says one day, but they disagree with the next day. And I I, I never forgot that. And she said, she she did mention the American poet who she thought was capable of doing it or had done it. And it was Robinson Jeffers, the California escape poet. Hmm. (laughs) That I would never have uh, uh, (laughs) predicted. (laughs) Maybe it's hard to do anger maybe it's hard to capture the insistence of anger i don't know it's it's intriguing i have to think about it yeah 
The one thing I'd also like to say, I mean, we've been looking at this poem and sort of saying, oh, you know, this, you know, is connected to that and that might connect to this. And, you know, where did he come into this poem from and where does he leave it off? And, and sort of skirting around what we can. But the, the poem itself is beyond all of our criticism. Criticism is um, to divide, to to define, to do this and that. That a poem is a little bit, in another Irish reference, a bit like a Harris Tweed sport coat. <laughs> and the Harris Tweed sport coat is made in such a way, and there was a guy named uh, Elliot Richardson's son, Michael Richardson. He said, hey, Sam, check this out. He was wearing a Harris Tweed jacket, and he took a pencil and he shoved it into the sleeve of this jacket and then he poked it out, you know, down a ways, you know, three, four inches and then pulled the pencil through the Harris Tweed sleeve and it left no mark. Like the Harris Tweed, you know, accommodated the pencil and huh. then it just, the weave just came back. Like a pond. Like you throw a rock into a pond and then like there's ripples, but then the pond heals. Yeah, the, the yeah. medicine. On that note. <laughs> Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.